Hi, I'm Teresa Neal, the founder of Gaidea and Femabate. Femtech to me is changing the face of healthcare to better reflect the other 50% of our population. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Teresa Neal, founder of Gadia and Femavate. Teresa is an O'Reilly author and recognized as a top designer in technology by Business Insider. Her client list includes Humana, Cigna, Johnson & Johnson, and global biopharma companies. Her company, Gadia, is an award-winning women-owned UX design consultancy specializing in digital health and femtech. Alongside the day-to-day of Gadia, Teresa is also applying her and her team's digital health experience to advance the femtech industry and the wellness of 1 billion women through their Femavate program. In this interview, we discuss easy improvements to femtech founders that they can make to enhance their pitch decks, trends in branding design for femtech companies, and how Femavate is truly backing the women's health movement. This is a great opportunity to learn more about UX, UI, and product design for women's health. Learn more about Gadia at Gadia.com. That's G-U-I-D-E-A.com. And learn more about Femovate at Femovate.com. F-E-M-O-V-A-T-E. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Teresa, welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. You are a total goddess in the design world, and I'm so grateful to have a deep connection with you, not only personally, but professionally. Uh, Folks, Teresa and her team are behind the design of FemHealth Insight software, and we're going to get more into that. But I am just a really big, grateful fan of yours, and you've done so much for our industry. So I'm just delighted to have some spotlight on you and your work today and your important insights. Where are you calling us from today? I am in Santa Cruz, California. How, How is it out there? It's a little foggy. Well, I am. Uh, um, you were uh, your headquarters was in Austin at one point, right? Is it still there for your good deal? Yeah, the headquarters is in Austin, and the company started there, and I was there for about twenty years. But we moved out to Santa Cruz a while back for the better weather, and uh, never, never looked back. Actually, yeah, yeah. I was talking to my friend yesterday who lives in Houston. She's like, "Yeah, my electric bill's like two hundred a month for my little apartment because it's a hundred and seven out." And I'm like, "I don't miss that at all." So happy to be in Raleigh. Um, well, let's actually get into your background a little bit because you've been running this business for so long. Tell us a little bit about your career, the history, and when did you get uh, find come across Femtech? Yeah, so we have a design consultancy called Gaidea. We started it in 2005, and really it was just uh, me working with a laptop in a old cabin that my husband and I were renovating at the time. But slowly and surely, we built up a client list. And my partner, Jessica, joined me, uh, I think, like three years later. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've had the opportunity to work with 20 of the Fortune 100 and hundreds of startups since then. 
And uh, it's been great. We work in complex domains. I have a ton of smart people on the team. We work with a ton of smart clients. And um, last year we were going to run what we call our sponsored startup program. So it's our way to give back to the startups that helped, you know, propel us into having this, you know, great portfolio and great reputation and all the awards that we won. But we can't take on our So I thought last year, we can't take on as many startups as we really want to help. And so we created this program like 10 years ago called the Sponsored Startup Program. And we reach out to all the folks in our network and let them know we're running the program and everybody can apply. And we'll take early stage startups and take one or two and work with them uh, at cost. So deeply discounted rate to help them launch their MVP or up level a product they already have in the market. And last year, we were getting ready to run the program again. I was like, you know, we're a woman-owned, woman-led company. Predominantly women here. Everybody here is certainly into supporting female founders as well as women's health. Like, we should should make the program special this year. So this is in 2022. And I was like, let's do do one for female founders. And then I was Googling and I found Femtech. So a year ago... (laughs) You know, like in June, I hadn't really heard of Femtech. And actually, you're one of the first people I met in the industry. And uh, we decided we'd run a brand new program, sponsored startups, but we would call it Femivate. And it would be specifically for early stage Femtech founders. And we had no idea what we were getting into. And it, it went from this little basically marketing program and support program for entrepreneurs. And now it's now it's our mission, right? So we've created this, um, you know, massive program supporting, I think we're at like 36 founders so far, and we have our new call for applications. Well, you know, that's what Femtech does to you. It gets a hold of you and it doesn't let go because it is one of those industries where you just find peers and positive energy and collaboration and just purpose, like some really important things that people are working on. And I know for myself, I was working as a VC in Texas and I was mentoring, you know, hundreds of founders But my femtech ones, oh, they were precious, right? And I wanted to kind of just totally focus on them, and and that's what I did. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about, um, because I definitely want to jump into Gadea and uh, our Femivate, excuse me, and all of the insights you have into design and women's health. But first, can you tell our listeners a little bit about um, Gadea's track record and specifically the services you provide? Because I think it's just so impressive. Um, And I just want to let people know the type of caliber of company that is giving so many resources to Femtech. And that kind of highlights how important or motivating Femtech is that a company like yours would be doing this type of work. So give us a little bit of background into the exact services you're offering and some of your track record. That's super flattering, but we are just a tiny company. There's there's 20 of us and we've made it 18 years, but still we're very tiny compared to Idean and Frog and IDEO and all the big design agencies in, in the world. Um, but we've, we've had a really good run. We've worked with some really fascinating clients over the years and typically 
what happens is if a company is looking for a way to innovate with their product or services, they may call us to do UX research to identify um, the opportunities uh, in which to you know, uh, drive product innovation, or they may have existing products or services that need to be up-leveled. Maybe they're a little old or a little dated, or they're just not competing well against you know, startups in the same space. And they'll call us again to do research and identify you know, where are there real opportunities for them to create a new experience or differentiate in the market. And then we take that research and we turn it into the design recommendations and then ultimately the digital designs for the new product. And it could be apps, it could be um, web applications, mobile apps, it could be companion apps for medical devices, but it's all, we're all on the, on the digital side. So we don't actually make physical products, but we do partner with the companies that are making physical products to have that digital companion piece. Yeah, my experience with you is that I had a vision for a, a landscaping tool for women's health startups. And I said, you know, we have this air table. I think it's going to look like a table on a, you know, website. And your team came back with the most awesome visualizations that, that really allowed people to see our data in a way that was, um, gave them more information than just lines of information, right? Like you gave the visual sense of the movement and the concentration and the white space in the, in the uh, industry. And so just, that was one of my favorite parts because that's a superpower that I guess I don't necessarily have. It's not necessarily, you know, I mean, no, no bad on me, but like, that's just not my background, but your team was able to say, okay, here's your idea. Here's how we're going to visualize it and have it be really impactful. So I, I love what you're doing. So what exactly is Femivate? You said it started as, you know, every year we kind of give back to startups. Then we decided to do Femtech. Next thing you know, you're helping like 30 companies. Um, tell us a little bit about how that program, you know, started and what it what it's like now. And then let's get into next the the details of what some trends you saw. But tell us about the program first. Sure. And I, I got to do a quick shout out to Katie who did the design work for you because she really took all that data and pulled forth the insights yes. that I think is going to really serve the, the folks using those, those tools. Katie, we love you. Um, so Femave is a UX sponsorship program for early stage femtech founders. So the founders do not need to be female. We are looking for founders that are innovating in women's health. And so Brittany, actually, again, we relied pretty heavily on you and the work that you've done, you've done to identify the and label the verticals within femtech and the product types within femtech. And so one of the sweet spots that we're in is really in the digital therapeutics, medical devices, um, any type of digital health. Uh, we're not as uh, probably savvy in like consumer packaged goods. We're doing a lot more on like designing solutions for patients, providers, payers, employers um, to really, you know, help on that angle of women's health. But when we um, when we created the program, we're like, okay, well, we'll pick as usual, uh, one or two startups, and we'll put like, you know, let's say like 50k of services into these uh, two startups. And, you know, we'll, we'll help them, you know, get their MVP out the door. 
And so I knew or I had a feeling that our existing network in tech um, may not surface a lot of femtech founders. Uh, so many over the years, many of the folks that we work with, uh, especially on the technology side, are guys and they're working in organizations that are not necessarily you know, focused on women's health. And so we were like, hmm, how do we reach this broader network? So we advertised with, with your group and um, Femtech Insider, Women of Wearables, and a couple other groups were super nice and supported us and you know, sent out this call for applications to their audiences. And um, we had 100 applicants come in from around the globe, which is not what we were expecting. We were thinking maybe 20 or 30 would come in. Oh, my gosh. And the the stories that people were sharing were so compelling that uh, Karen, who uh, runs our program, and myself thought we should meet one-on-one with every single founder. We didn't want to screen folks out because maybe they had they couldn't articulate their business strategy perfectly yet or because they had, you know, an ugly pitch deck, right? You know, if a company is coming and asking, hey, can you help with this? It's kind of rude to disqualify them because, you know, they don't have a pretty pitch deck. <laughs> so Karen and I ended up meeting with every single founder who applied and spent an hour or more with each of these folks and got a crash course on um, not just our bodies, like I've learned a lot about my body yep. <laughs> last year and I'm 46. I have three kids. I should already know these things. I had no idea. So we learned a lot about our bodies and we learned about the state of women's health care, which is depressing. Um, and then we learned a lot about um, the, the people who are trying to innovate in this space. So the caliber of the applicants that we had for Femivate last year, and I'm sure this year too, far exceeds anything I've seen when I volunteered with Techstars or Capital Factory. Or wow. No shade on these companies that are that are running full-blown accelerator programs. Mm-hmm. Um, but the caliber of applicants was astonishing. And so every person, every founder or founder team we met and every story they told us, I was like, well, we have to keep them. And Karen's like, well, we're up to we're up to 12. And you said, we're only taking two. And then, and then she's like, well, we're up to 20. And you said, we're only taking maybe three. And she's like, okay, we're up to 30. And I was like, oh. and then we had like one more come in. And one of the last ones that came in um, was Kelsey from Armor Medical. And uh, we, we met with, um, we met with her and she explained that postpartum hemorrhage impacts 14 million women worldwide annually and something like 800,000 women die bleeding to death um, after having a baby. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what? Like, I can't, like, cannot compute. This does not make sense to me. I was like, oh, well, is that in other countries? And she's like, no, it's, it's here. It's here too. And she's like, we've come up with a, um, a proactive way to detect this and address it. I was like, okay, well, Karen, we have to take them. <laughs> she's like, what are we going to do? So we, we decided that, um, you know, this is when it switched from a program to a mission, right? Mm. We're like, well, we're going to take 30 teams and we're going to put in, you know, 10 times as many teams. We'll put in 10 times as much money. So we're like, we'll put in 500 K services to support these teams. And as you know, being one of the teams that was selected, 
it was a, it's been a, it's been a bumpy year, right? Like we've never run this program before. We had no idea the scale that we were going to run it. And we just hope that if we put all of our energy and all of our skills and as much money as we can towards it, that people will cut us some slack for not being like absolutely the most perfect meeting schedule. Yeah, no. <laughs> and sometimes people had to wait a little longer, but I think everybody was very generous, um, you know, in, in, you know, being flexible with our timelines, but we have been able to support over 30 teams um, get either products, new products launched, products optimized and revised, um, help people, teams find like their go-to-market strategy, help them with their um, product strategy. We've done close to a thousand hours of user research with patients, providers, employers, and end users. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing run. Wow. What were some of the trends you saw in terms of the design for these companies and, and, and both like positive trends you saw, but then also things that you were like, why, why are these people doing this? Like, stop doing that. <laughs> you know, were, were there some common traits? Yeah, we noticed um, last year with the applicants coming in, a lot of the pitch decks led with, I, and I have to back up. I think founders, um, you know, there's, you've got a lot on your plate, right? You can't become a professional salesperson and a professional tech person and become an, you know, open up a new business. And, and many of the people we met are running a full-time business or practice in addition to starting a technology company, which and it may be their first tech company. So I don't expect anybody to be experts in this, but I think a lot of people must have read, um, a recommendation that when you create a pitch deck, you should lead with your story. And so we got a lot of pitch decks that started with a, a title page that had a picture of a woman like bent over in pain, like clutching their abdomen, curled up on the bed, potentially crying, lots of lots of scenes of, of female discomfort. And I didn't really think about it until we were probably 30 or 40 decks in, but I was like, I don't normally see this. I don't normally see men pitch with, I was working at Netflix when I realized we had a real issue with cloud security and it doesn't show a picture of a guy, you know, like crying over his laptop, crying over the security yeah. issues. And I was like, I think, I think we might be doing ourselves a disservice here, leading with stories of pain and suffering on topics that VCs don't even want to hear about, right? Yeah. So like leading with the story of, um, you know, the pain of, of dealing with uterine fibroids to a room of people who don't want to hear the word uterus is probably like kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. So um, that was a trend that we saw. And we've coached a lot of people to like, hey, why don't we, um, you know, when we're talking to VCs, we want to be putting forward the opportunity for them to, uh, you know, uh, multiply their investment. So let's lead with market size, need, revenue possibilities. Let's go with facts instead of like the feelings. And then at the end, you can tie in your story. Like, hey, this is actually something that's really important to me because I too went through this and I have firsthand knowledge of it. The other thing I saw was um, the level of humility of the founders that were pitching was actually causing problems in the pitch deck. So we would, again, go through these lengthy stories, and I don't want to diminish women's stories uh, or, or men's stories, 
of uh, what they've gone through. I'm just saying, I'm not sure it's the most effective way to create a VC pitch deck. Mm -hmm. Um, But we would go through the stories and kind of wondering like, okay, what, what are you getting at? Like, what's the, what's the punchline here? And then finally be like, oh, this is something that's impacting 28% of the population. This is something that costs the American healthcare industry $400 billion a year or something. You're like, oh, now you kind of like start to perk up. And then there would be like these slide at the end, which would list the founder's credentials. And a lot of these founders are highly credentialed people. They may be running their own practice. There's a lot of physicians. There's people who are um, academic geniuses and and they have all of the letters. Um, You have biotech and biomed engineers. And it's like kind of tucked down at the bottom. And I was like, let's let's take let's have a little more ego. Let's bring you up to the front. Be like, I'm actually a leader and clinical researcher in postpartum depression. Note all of my credentials. (laughs) Now I want to talk to you about this topic and the areas of opportunity we have. So that was was one trend that we saw. It looks like this year, um, the applicant pitch decks are a little more centered on what we would expect to see in a VC pitch and a little less along the storyline. I wonder if that's like what, what progress that like what happened, you know, in the last 12 months, I wonder if it's just more respect for the industry or, you know, more stronger mentors like yourself coming in and saying, all right, ladies, you're badass and I need you to say it, <laughs> you know, up front. Have you had any feedback from the applicants from last year when you told them about like, hey, let's reposition this to start with facts over f- and then feelings? Um, have you had any feedback in terms of like that working out better for them? Definitely. Uh, we've gotten, well, first off, people have been great about taking feedback because, you know, your pitch deck is like your baby. You know, you like. <laughs> You have sweated and thought and had sleepless nights and revised it and changed out the graphics countless times. People are so good about taking feedback. Um, it's been an interesting exercise with folks. We'll sit there and and talk about what, let's pretend you're a VC. Let's think you're, you know, if, if you're looking at this from a revenue perspective, right? Reinvestment perspective. And, and they want to know how is this going to multiply, right? How would you show that information? And I remember talking to a woman who, a uh, founder, who is uh, putting together um, a really novel wearable breast pump. And she was like, well, this it's a really hard time in women's lives. And I was like, I know, I nursed three kids, I'm with you. Um, first two were easy, third one, I couldn't figure out what could possibly be wrong. Like, I, I feel it. And we've heard countless stories of this. And I was like, but if we talk to VCs, what are we going to tell them? Because they're not everybody in that room is going to have nursed a baby or even been part of that family unit or experience before, nor is that really a super compelling business proposition. And she started to think about um, the numbers. I was like, what stats do you have? And she's like, and I can't remember them off the top of my head, but she was like, you know, um, moms actually spend, uh, and it was, it was a really high number of hours pumping and nursing a day like really high. It was like 20 to 40 or more hours a week. I was like, whoa, that's a full-time job. And I was thinking back, I was like, did I really nurse and pump that much? I was like, yeah, I guess I did. I was like, so, so what would you, what, what value proposition 
do you have for this? And so we actually spent like an hour in that call doing math. How do we turn this into hours Mm -hmm. that women would have, say, productivity or availability outside of kind of, you know, the the nursing pumping thing where you kind of need to be in one spot um, and really focused on specifically that task? And so, again, that's not to say that, like, I'm advocating that people shouldn't have the opportunity to sit still and enjoy nursing their baby. But if we're looking at it from a different angle, you know, how do we how do we calculate that? And so another good one was the Armour Medical one. And the VCs, there were VCs that were that said, you know, 800,000 women dying a year is not a big enough market for us to care about, which is horrifying. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, let's look at some numbers. And women who suffer PPH, the cost of their care is 400% higher than women who don't. Okay, now we have a number. Let's take that number and let's work that and see what the savings would be, you know, in healthcare organizations if we had a proactive tool. I love this. And so your encouragement to founders is, you know, quantify this impact uh, figure out what that, you know, the cost savings is or the, the, um, productivity time lost to, um, and those are the numbers we should be leading with versus, uh, and I know the, I know the woman, the woman bent over cringing on the couch, looking sad. We all know her and she's real and she's, you know, relevant, but, um, in order for us to move this needle, we have to like kind of speak the language of business folk because business at the end of the day, those, uh, venture capitalists are fiduciary, you know, responsible for investing money to make money. And so, so um, even if they want to invest in a sad story, they have to invest in a good business is at the end of the day what they need to do. And now a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Gadia, your go-to UX design consultancy specializing in digital health innovation. Gadia isn't just any design firm. They're a women-owned, women-led powerhouse team that's partnered with 20 of the Fortune 100 companies and impacted over a billion lives through dozens of live products, clinical trials, and even FDA approvals. Speaking from personal experience, the Gadia team excels in translating your vision into transformative solutions that not only win awards, but significantly improve outcomes. And driven by their passion for health equity, Gadia is also the team behind Femivate, a sponsorship program focused on uplifting underrepresented founders in reaching underserved populations. We've already collaborated with over 30 femtech startups across 14 different verticals, offering specialized one-on-one mentoring and guidance in UX research, strategy, and design. So if you are in the femtech space, whether you're just starting or scaling up, Gadia wants to hear from you. Don't miss this chance to work with the team as a committed to your vision as you are. Visit Gadia.com. That's G-U-I-D-E-A.com. Let's raise the standard for digital healthcare together. And now back to the interview. Are there any unique UI, UX, product design features that are specific to women's health that you notice kind of boiled up? Because you've touched so many products and softwares over the years. Is there anything kind of unique to the product design of women's health products? Totally. So we didn't know this coming in. And we've spent years designing digital therapeutics, um, companion apps um, for medical devices. What else? 
adherence applications for pharma. So we've done a lot of research and design in the healthcare space. But once we took on Femivate and we started doing generative user research with women who are dealing with a challenge or a diagnosis or a chronic condition, what we started to find was um, the design of the product, we could not actually just dive in and be like, um, the product cannot just dive in and be like, here, let me help you. Unlike the other things that we've uh, created and have in the market and our clients have FDA approval on, it's different with women's health because women have, in many cases, even our Gen Z research showed us this, women have been dismissed and disregarded and disbelieved for so long that we actually have to start design or create a user experience in a different way. The upfront work if we're designing, let's say, a patient or a consumer experience, the upfront work has to be around building a trustworthy brand. And then once you've instilled, like once, uh, let's say, our femtech founders have created trust with the, the patient or the consumer, then, then we move on to the next section of dispelling all the myths and the misinformation. <laughs> so if you have somebody who is, you know, spent eight to 10 years trying to get an endometriosis diagnosis and they have been, you know, disregarded or not even believed or told, you know, just suck it up, take some Advil all this time. Again, you've got to build that trust. But then secondarily, they've probably read a lot of information during that time period. And because it can be so painful, they may have, you know, uh, folks may have even resorted to, you know, some of the ads on Facebook, like, oh, do you have endo pain? Take the cayenne lemon juice diet, right? So there's this whole thing of like, first we build trust, then we have to dispel myths and misinformation and get like a level set base of real information about the diagnosis or the condition or the challenge. And then once we get over that hurdle, then we can start talking about what does the good future look like? Mm -hmm. um, how is this app or tool or product or device going to help you moving forward? And also, we really, really believe you, right? So all of this has to be done in a digital interface. This building trust, this education, this reassurance that what you're saying is real. So if we're asking a woman about a symptom, they need to know that the app, the brand, the whole product is going to believe them when they record that information and not disregard it. So those are things that we don't necessarily have to do when we're designing for the general population, but it's, you know, absolutely foundational to do in femtech products. That is such good and insightful um, finding. I know I've come up with the femtech trifecta that every successful femtech company has a great product or service, a community and education. And, you know, a lot of times I say that's because, um, women feel alone. And so providing that kind of community, the sense of like, wow, there's other people in here, they're using this, they have it too. I'm not alone. I'm not unique. Um, and then the education part is the, you know, learning about it. 
and then there's the product. And so a lot of times, you know, startups can just focus on the product or service, but to be successful in femtech, you need those other two things. And I guess I've never really considered that those other two things, uh, what they're doing is what you just said is we believe you and we're going to, um, you know, get rid of all this, uh, nonsense stuff that you've read and try to level set the, into facts and medical facts. So that's, that is super interesting. Do you think that there's a difference between, um, you know, uh, designers that are male or female or woman and man designing these products for women and men? Do you think that we need more women designing these types of products or um, are men sometimes missing the mark on it? Just talk to us about gender and design. And um, that's a big, broad question. <laughs> I we have, we have great guy designers on our team who have been active contributors to the Femivate projects. And we have needed their skills, right, as researchers and designers. And I think because of their background and empathy, they've brought a lot to as much to the table or more in some cases. One of our designers, his name is Nine, like the number nine, his background in um, IoT has been really pivotal in helping our teams that have uh, devices with companion apps, just from the breadth of knowledge that he has working with that um, previously at Honeywell. So I don't want to discount anyone of any gender from working on this. I think it's all about, um, well, one, uh, user research, unbiased user research is key to designing any product and solution. So we spend a lot of our time designing products in fields we don't work in, right? So like uh, we did an edge computing project last year. I'm not, an, I don't know how to set up an edge computing network. I will not be using this tool when I grow up. <laughs> you know, like, this is this is not something, you know, I, I have any experience or background in. However, we spend a lot of time interviewing people with the subject matter expertise using design patterns to hopefully achieve the outcomes that they need and then testing and validating that extensively until we come up with something that's going to work for them. I think once we put that process in here for Femtech, it doesn't matter what gender you are, as long as you're following a process that's removing um, bias in the research phase, and then just really listening and being aware of what people are saying. It's, it's kind of hard to... Um, so it's kind of hard to underestimate or misinterpret the need after, or from what I'm seeing, it's hard to underestimate the need once we talk to uh, women with particular diagnosis or conditions. So what I mean by that is we were doing user research for high IV. So our friends up in Canada um, and their medical device is, um, you know, to help women with hypertonic or people with hypertonic pelvic floor. And when we started interviewing these participants, people were moved to tears, including our researchers, because they didn't know anybody. I'm going to probably cry too. They didn't know anybody cared enough to even pioneer a product for this, enough to reach out and ask what their opinions were, that there's actually something in the pipeline 
to treat a painful condition that they've been suffering with for years. And once you have that type of research experience, it's very hard to walk away and um, not, you know, like disregard that and create a product that isn't going to help this population feel seen and heard and give them all the resources that they need to be successful, right? You feel really deeply about that population and you really want to help them after that. Yeah. I told you, once you get into femtech, it doesn't let you go. (laughs) You you hear the stories, you're like, what else am I supposed to do with my life? It seems like it's this. Um, Do you find that user research is different in these um, industries and categories because of the lack of being seen and heard and talked to um, as compared to potentially either like a male patient or maybe a hospital system or just another demographic of buyer or user that may think I have the right to this or of course someone should be working on this. Whereas it sounds like a lot of times femtech patients are like, like you said, brought to tears that with the idea that anyone's even caring at all. Do you find that the data or the responses you get from user research is different? Oh, definitely. Because if you have a whole population that has been told for so long that what they're experiencing doesn't matter or isn't real for them to hear that we're making anything is great. And so that <laughs> it's a little tricky to like actually test what we're making because they're so thrilled <laughs> that anything's being made. Um, but one, another thing that's kind of stood out for me uh, as being really different is that, and I, I didn't catch this early on, we were probably halfway in to um, the 2022 program before this dawned on me, I, f- I felt really bad about it, but hopefully this will help other people um, who are who are creating femtech products. Before you, before I should frame it in how in the lesson I learned, we should have thought beforehand about doing trauma informed training before doing user research with people who have, whether they would say it or not likely suffered some form of trauma um, in uh, being left unseen and unheard for all of these years with real conditions, right? And, and so we changed up our um, training now and we actually have trauma-informed training for our researchers wow. so that everybody knows how to deal when, when people share um, difficult stories during user research. And what do we do if somebody... Um, mention self-harm or harm to others what is our company's response to that because it's it I didn't again I didn't realize it early on but it's irresponsible to have not had a plan for that and you know I'll I'll take the blame on that one I just didn't think of it but now that we know I would encourage everybody to do it if even if you're a founder doing your own research you're going out and talking to women about postpartum depression or um, you're talking with um folks about sexual trauma or STIs, uh, it's the, the courses are pretty short. You can knock them out in a couple hours, but it gives you a really good frame of reference for how to be better at having these conversations with people as you're trying to get information to help them. Absolutely. I mean, in a super, like, not even relevant, but kind of relevant example of this, just to not trigger any listeners. But like, for example, I went gluten-free in January. There are so many people that when I'm like, oh, I'm gluten-free, they literally say, I'd kill myself if I couldn't eat bread. I know. Like, so the countless number of people tell me that. And I'm like, that is not an appropriate response to an allergy, right? It's a medical condition I have (laughs) that I was very sick from. And in fact, it's quite amazing that I discovered it. In fact, you should be like 
congratulating me that I found it and now I'm healthy and happy, right? So it's like not nearly on the same level as this, but just that kind of response. I think that sometimes people can think, oh, wow, I'm almost trying to congratulate you about how intent, how good, how, you know, like, um, uh, and you know, uh, stable you are with your new diet. And it's like, that's, I have a medical condition called celiac. <laughs> like, that's what we're talking about. You know, like you'd kill yourself if you had it. That's not, that's not very supportive. And so are you saying that these classes are just online that people can take? Yeah. And I'll send you some links over and you can, you can. Perfect. Them. We'll put them in the show notes, y'all, everybody. I, I'll even do it. Like that is, um, super, uh, forward thinking. And unfortunately, some of the stuff that we have to deal with in femtech is not typical in a lot of industries because you, you know, might be speaking to people with, you know, cancer and they know they have cancer. Everyone knew they had cancer and like they were treated, but then somebody with maybe hypertonic pelvic floors, just being told it's in their head. It's very, it's kind of that different response. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's turn into brand design a little bit. Do you notice any trends in brand design in femtech? Um, and did these trends are like helping or hindering, uh, to the story or the product? I've noticed there's been a couple of articles out around, um, how all of us in femtech might do a better job in picking imagery that mm-hmm. doesn't stereotype. And so, uh, Karen and I have reviewed about 50 pitch decks so far from the applicants this year. And we are noticing a lot of um, white panties. So in order to, it's it's interesting because uh, people are trying really hard to make sure that everybody's skin tone is represented, mm-hmm. right? So yay for diversity. But then we're putting the the stock imagery has all of these women in white panties in order to best reflect their skin color. And so I'm like, not really sure this is. And they're also very thin usually. So Mm. I guess what I'm getting to is we I know we all have limited resources and we're using like Adobe stock photography or um, shutter stock. And so we just pull what we can. Right. We don't have many of us. I certainly don't have a photography budget to go get real people off the street and get real photos to put out on the site. But we can be sensitive to picking um, imagery that doesn't reinforce stereotypes. And so I saw an article on Forbes. I'll send you the link to this one, too, around like what the menopausal woman stereotypically looks like. You know, they've either got her as like a biker, like the spiked purple hair and in its um, we don't need to reinforce that. We can have real looking people in each of these roles. Um, we're, we're also a little over the women clutching fruit in front of their abdomen. Look, uh, the pomegranate, the cantaloupe, um, you know, in, in favor of, uh, more realistic photography would be nice. But the big thing that I see that's more than just my opinion of, uh, stock photography is around color palettes. Mm. So we noticed last year, a lot of the teams that we were working with had uh, pastel color palettes, right? So there's in Femtech, obviously a lot of pink and purple. We have pink and purple in our brand. You have it in your brand, right? We do, Um, yeah. (laughs) But when, and there's a lot of the, kind of the rainbow sherbet colors, right? The light mint, the light peach, the light pink. I don't have anything against these colors, However, when you're creating digital applications, we have to select colors that have a high enough level of contrast for readability. 
Mm-hmm. And so what we were able to do, and I'll use uh, Fertilite as an example, great founder, great product, uh, great brand direction. All we did for them, instead of having, let's say, a mint background with white text, which does not um, pass color contrast accessibility guidelines, is we took, we got to keep the mint background, and then we took a darker mint and used that as the text and the icon colors. And we darkened it to the point that we got enough color contrast for readability. And then the same for on the pale pink and the pale peach. So a lot of the teams we work with, we're just helping them uh, overhaul their color palette so that it's going to work on a phone or on a screen and people will really be able to read it. Cause we don't want people not consuming this content because, you know, they're either maybe perimenopause and over 40 and they can't see without their glasses or maybe they're just in a bright environment and you really just can't read white text on a pale pink background. Yeah. Did you find any trends with like oh, it being very pink or in flowers or butterflies? Or do you think that's kind of like five years ago, women's health and we're now in a, you know, a lioness, if you will, as our <laughs> podcast logo is, or do you, do you still see a lot of kind of uh, stereotypical feminine imagery? There's still a lot of stereotypical feminine feminine imagery, but I think it's moving, right? It's getting more refined, more polished. However, um, as early stage um, startup founders, again, we're at the mercy of like what's on an affordable stock photography or program like Canva, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you search women's health or you search female health or you search femtech or med for women or whatever in these platforms, it just keeps serving up the same pink and purple and butterfly mm-hmm. um, information. So it may make sense to look around at other uh, color palettes that you see like in stores that you like to go to, you know, if you like Bloom Sonoma or you like the new line at Target or wherever, you know, you like to shop and look and be like, oh, this is like, if I'm doing a premium brand, Um, you know, this is a color palette I see, or, oh, it looks like Target's really trying to appeal to Gen Z with this campaign they've put out. Let's look at that color palette. And you can pick color palettes and brand direction that don't scream pink uh, women, you know, and, uh, you know, draw from different inspiration. What's your future vision for Femivate? Oh, um, well, we have, a, you know, I have a whole team working on this and everybody has a slightly different vision. It's fun to get everybody together and talk about it. But right now, so we're in year two, we're open for applications through September 18th. Well, shameless plug there. Um, we hope to have at least another 100 applications again. And we will um, overall pick 30 teams. We are picking, we are keeping some teams from last year and rolling them forward. Now that they've moved into like clinical trials or uh, research or into their MVP, they still need additional help. So we're going to keep them and we're going to add some new. But long term, what we're hoping to do is um, continue to support teams pro bono. And then down the road, when they get funded, uh, hopefully they will re-engage with us at our normal you know, agency rate. And we can start to build out a Femivate fund so that we would then be able to invest not just services, but actual dollars into uh, future teams. 
I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, our last two questions here, this has been such an insightful interview. I know that people are going to be taking a lot away from this. Um, So if someone wanted to start a femtech company, we have a lot of students, aspiring entrepreneurs. What's an area in women's health that you think still needs innovating? You know what? I'm so in the weeds working with all of these teams. I've not even given that any thought. Right. They're the geniuses on that. And they come and they're like, we need this thing. And I'm like, we need this thing. And then, you know, we're like, how do we, how do we bring it to life? Um, However, I would like to put a piece of advice forward. Um, The tool that you've created with Fem Health Insights and the Femtech Landscape Report and some of the other uh, international reports that are out there, I would suggest anybody who's coming into Femtech, first of all, congratulations. And then second, welcome you for your passion. <laughs> and then third, please go read these things because you need to really understand what the market is. It's mm. going to be very disappointing to put a lot of time and effort um, thinking about a problem that you want to solve. Maybe you've experienced it personally, only to realize that it's either a saturated market already, um, or you have some really strong competition, or sometimes the idea that you have has actually already been done. So it's worthwhile to take that enthusiasm and channel it into some desk research and get really familiar with the landscape. And then if you see, ooh, um, there there isn't a strong competitor here, or even if, oh, there are competitors here, then go spend time playing with the competitor solutions Mm -hmm. so that you can figure out, do you have a differentiator? Yeah. Because if you don't have a differentiator, then odds are good from being, you know, coming from an idea, then it's going to be very hard to be successful, especially if an area is already kind of saturated, like fertility or um, menstrual tracking. Yeah. So that, that would be my advice. And that'll serve you well because you're going to meet so many different people going through and looking at all these different companies. And it may even spark ideas. Like the first idea that you have, it doesn't have to be the one you run with for the next 10 years, right? Yeah. It could be just the first draft. You might go through three, four or five ideas. You've done that, right? Like this is not your first company. No, not my first company. Um, But actually uh, even more so than me, I have this friend named Ken Barton and he's on his like 10th. And I mean, he's gone from like dating apps to pitch competition, like virtual YouTube things, real estate. Now he's like making um, a, a chat bot for chatting with people locally. And the guy does not care. He's like, next chapter, that one didn't work. Next chapter, that one. And he's like, there, there's no like, oh, it didn't work. I had to close that chapter. Now I'm going to start. New. He's like, nope, nope. I hadn't. I found out enough data or had an, an experience, realized it wasn't right. And I pivoted. Now I'm over here. And um, I think that we should take a note on that in terms of like, you don't have to be perfect on that first idea. In fact, the whole thing is that learning experience leading you to that big idea. 100%. And our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry needs the most right now in order to be successful? Oh my gosh, investment. Is that something you saw a lot in your applicants and their need? Yeah. I mean, that's that's why again, we're at we're a tiny 20-person company. And so far we've put in over 800 k in services, which is mostly from our our company profits and my savings. If every little company who cared could put in that proportional amount of funds, well, we wouldn't have a problem then, right? We need more champions, more advocates, and more investment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we'll get there by talking about these issues and framing them in a way in terms of like the actual opportunity 
um, and the market size. So yeah, I think that's the biggest blocker right now. I love it. Thank you so much for all you do for our industry, Teresa. Thank you for all you've done for us at Fem Health Insights and Femtech Focus. We adore you and your team and uh, can't wait to continue to uh, support all the companies that are applying. If you are listening, you need to apply. Just go ahead and apply. It's so worth it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my interview with Teresa Neal, founder of Gadia and Femivate. Learn more about Gadia at gadia.com. That's G-U-I-D-E-A. And be sure to get your application in for the next cohort of Femivate before September 18th at femivate.com. F-E-M-O-V-A-T-E.com. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.